Please take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We come this morning to begin a glorious new series in this great book of Romans. We'll be reading this morning chapters, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. In many ways, the book of Romans is the master key that unlocks the rest of the Bible. It is the security card that gets us into all of the hallways, all the doors of the scriptures. John Calvin put it like this, when anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage opened to him to the understanding of the whole scripture. When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasure of scripture. And so it will be our joy and delight in these coming months to study God's word together. We begin now in the introduction, the salutation, Romans 1 verses 1 to 7. This is God's word. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Oh Lord, by your grace, we belong to Jesus Christ. We have been loved by you. We've been called to be saints by this gospel of powerful mercy. Lord, would you now, by your Holy Spirit, instruct our hearts? Would you change us and transform us by your truth and grace? Together, we pray that you, O oh Lord, would be honored and glorified as we study your word. Change us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Imagine that you had a project that you wanted to accomplish. And there was a group of people that you wanted to support you in this endeavor. And so you sat down to write them for their help. But this group of people did not know you personally, and you did not know them personally, except you did know that amongst their members, uh, particularly those of different ethnicities and different cultural backgrounds, uh, there was tension, there was conflict. What sort of letter would you write to this group that you wanted to support you financially? What's, what was the tenor of your letter be? What would you say to them? Would you perhaps keep the letter short and light and surfacy so that you wouldn't offend anyone and, and you would be able to, to, to get them to like you and to support you? Would you just completely ignore what you knew was sort of the elephant in the room about this group of people? Or would you do what Paul does here in the letter to the Romans? Would you send a long letter full of dense doctrine? And would you address head-on the issues of their division and their strife? And would you close the letter by expressly and explicitly and directly asking that they would support you, that they would pray for you, that they would give you money? Now, if you are familiar with this great book of Romans, you probably think of it as a doctrinal treatise. Right, this magisterial letter summarizing 
what Paul believed. It's incredibly rich, but it is difficult at points, isn't it? Difficult to understand. It talks about God's righteous judgment on sin. It talks about God's righteous provision of Jesus Christ to save sinners through his person and work. It talks about justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification and our union with Christ that undergirds and grounds all these gifts. It talks about the relationship between God's law and God's grace. It talks about predestination and election, about the relationship between Jew and Gentile and and God's purposes for his covenant people and for the nations. It talks about our relationship with the state and with the other Christians and with the world. It is a, a dense Letter filled with truth. It's a mini systematic theology that has encouraged and strengthened and convicted and challenged God's people down through the ages. But what you may not realize, or what you may not think about as you read this letter, is that the book of Romans is just that it is a letter written by a, a person in specific circumstances to a church in specific circumstances. Paul wrote this letter, his longest letter. For specific reasons. And though we may not be able to to figure out all those reasons, and they're not as clear as perhaps in some other books, yet we are able to discern the reasons for which Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it from the city of Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey in the mid-50s A.D., and his work in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, has come to a close, and he has plans to move to Spain to preach the gospel there. And this letter is partly a support letter, a fundraising letter, a letter to get the Roman Christians to support his ministry. In chapter 15, verse 24, he writes this, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. This fact of Paul writing a support letter, as it were, helps us to understand why he writes such a long letter and why he writes his longest salutation of all the letters that he writes. You see, Paul and the Roman Christians had never met, though he had heard about them and their faith. He had longed to go to Rome to meet them and to preach the gospel there and to be encouraged by the saints there. They had certainly heard about him, but as we see from the Corinthian letters, it's possible that they had heard some things about Paul that were not too favorable. And so Paul needs to introduce himself to the Roman church. He needs to speak to them what it is that he proclaims. What does he preach? What does he teach? He needs to give them his statement of faith, as it were, so that they would have confidence to support him when he arrives. And so that's Part of the reason why this letter to the Romans is such a densely and detailed exposition of the Christian faith, written by a man who had been in the trenches of ministry and the Christian life and and conflict within the church for over 20 years when he pens this letter. But there was a related reason for sending such a a densely doctrinal treatise. You see, Paul knew that the, the church in Rome was made up of Jew and Gentile. Back in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we read there that there were uh, Jews from Rome and God-fearers from Rome, uh, Gentile converts to Judaism. It's very probable that those were the Christians who had planted the church here in Rome. 
And over time, as we read this letter, it appears uh, that tension had arisen between the Jews and the Gentiles there in the Roman church. And so Paul wants to help to heal those divisions by teaching the truth of the gospel that had saved both Jew and Gentile. And so throughout this letter, you will see Paul address issues that relate to this tension, whether the role of the moral law in salvation and in the Christian life, whether Abraham's relationship to Jew and to Gentile, whether the, uh, what, what the influx of the Gentiles into the church means for God's people of the Jewish race and of descendants of Abraham, how Christians should relate to the Jewish ceremonial law. You often hear, don't you, doctrine divides. Well, for, for Paul, doctrine unifies, especially when the doctrine is the doctrine of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our text this morning. In these first seven verses, Paul is telling the Roman Christians about himself. He tells us that he is a servant, a doulos, a slave of Christ Jesus. His life is no longer his own, but he has been bought with a price. He belongs completely to Jesus, who has called him to be an apostle, a messenger, a sent one. Paul is not self-appointed. Paul is not appointed by man. He is appointed by Christ. He is Christ's ambassador, sent to represent the crucified and resurrected king to all the nations. From before he was conceived in his mother's womb, at the time of his conversion in Acts 9, Paul tells us that he had been set apart for the gospel, the euangelion, the, the good news to preach and to teach and to proclaim and to explain the message of salvation. But as Paul introduces himself in these verses, you notice that he also introduces the gospel. Now, when you hear that word gospel, perhaps you respond to it the way that, that I did growing up for, for so long. If you grew up in a church like I grew up, you heard the word gospel, and you said, oh, yeah, yeah, the gospel. That's for the lost. That's for people who aren't Christians already. They need to hear the gospel so that they will become saved. But once you're a Christian, you don't need to hear the gospel anymore. The gospel is for people outside of Christ, outside of the church. But as we'll see in this great book, the gospel is for the lost and for the found. The gospel is for unbelievers, for new believers, for maturing believers, for mature believers. We never outgrow our need to hear, to think on, to believe, to meditate upon the message of God's grace in Christ. We never know it or live it as well as we could or should. As we're going to sing in a little bit, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. So how does Paul describe this gospel message that we all need to hear? We're going to be unpacking it every week as we study this book together. But this morning, I just want you to, to briefly see five truths that Paul sets forth for us here in this passage about the gospel. First, he wants to tell us it is a divine message. Secondly, he wants to tell us it is a Christ-centered message. Third, he wants to tell us it is an ancient message. Fourth, he will tell us it's a saving message. And fifth and finally, he will tell us it is a universal message. We're not going to be able to spend a lot of time on any of these points, obviously. Uh, but with Paul, we will come back to them 
as we work our way through this letter, like a trip to Sam's, right? These are the samples that will prepare you for the great feast that is to come. So first, the gospel, says Paul, is a divine message. Look at verse 1. He tells us that he has been set apart for the gospel of God. Now, if you have daughters and if you've raised them in the last 20 years, you've probably read the Fancy Nancy books, right? Fancy Nancy likes to use big, fancy words. Fancy Nancy would look at this phrase, the gospel of God, and she would say, this is a genitive phrase because she likes big, fancy words. A genitive phrase, an of phrase. And whenever you see a genitive phrase, you have to do thinking. You can't just skate right over it. Because what do we mean by that little word of? How are those three words related? If we say the house of blues, we mean the house in which the blues live and the blues are played. Right? If we speak of the paintings of Michelangelo, we mean the paintings that were created by him, that have their source in him. Sometimes we can mean multiple things, can't we? If we speak of the book of John, we might mean the book that John owns, but we could also mean the book that John authored. Or similarly, we speak of the story of Job. We might mean the story about Job, but it could be also the story that was written by Job. Context determines the meaning. So what does the gospel of God mean? Well, most likely, Paul is telling us that God is the source of the gospel. He's the author of it. It is his gospel. He originated it. He designed it. He came up with it. It is rooted in his eternal purpose and plans. Its origin, its character, its content is divine. It's not a human message. It's not just one more religious story amongst all the other religious stories out there in the world. Paul did not invent it. He's merely its messenger. He's the delivery boy. God has entrusted this gospel to him to proclaim it in its entirety. So the gospel is divine. It is authored by God. But that little phrase could also mean, and there's a very real sense in which it does mean, that God is the subject and the object of that gospel. God is the one about whom the gospel is. The gospel is about this great and glorious God. Just flip, flip your eyes to chapter 1, verse 16. Right? When Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. And then in verse 17 he says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. You see that the gospel is about God. Paul was a God-intoxicated man. 153 times in this letter he will use the word theos, God. The gospel of God is the good news about, about what God has done to save sinners before time began, in world history, and in our personal histories. So the gospel of God means that he is the source of it, and it's about him. But it's even richer, isn't it? It's even fuller. It's, it's even deeper because Paul's going to go on to tell us, secondly, that the gospel is a Christ-centered message. God has acted to save sinners in the person and the work of his son. Skip over verse 2 for a moment and look at verse 3. Paul has been set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son. The content of God's gospel is primarily the eternal son whom the father has sent into the world at the fullness of the time. 
Now here Paul speaks of the incarnation of the preexistent son, his death and his resurrection from the dead, and his reign ushered in by the resurrection as the son of God in power, opposed to the son of God in weakness. You see it there, don't you, in verse 3? Paul tells us that the divine son was descended from David according to the flesh. That's why we read from Isaiah chapter 11. It spoke of uh, the Messiah being uh, coming from uh, this, uh, being a seed of David. Jesus, the Son, without ceasing to be God, takes to himself a true body and a reasonable, rational soul with all of our human weakness, with all of our human frailty, but without sin. And he does this as we confess together from Hebrews chapter 2 and Philippians 2 in order to save his people from our sins. Jesus became a man in order that he might die as the substitute of all of those whom God has given to him before the foundation of the world. But notice in this text, Paul only skirts over and really just implies the death of Jesus by speaking of the resurrection of the dead. His focus here in this verse, verse 3 and verse 4, is on the second stage of Jesus' incarnate existence. When he writes that Jesus was declared the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. You see, the Son of God was born the seed of David in weakness. But according to the Holy Spirit, by his resurrection, he was declared, or better we might translate it, he was appointed and designated and ordained the Son of God in power. The resurrection and and then the ascension of Jesus to God's right hand was God's declaration that the wicked verdict that had been publicized against his son when he hung on the cross, that the son was a criminal worthy of death, that that verdict was wrong. That Jesus was, in fact, the righteous one. In raising Jesus from the dead, the father was vindicating the son as the beloved one, the righteous one, who didn't die for his own sins, but for the sins of others, the sins of his people, so that Paul will later tell us he was raised for our justification. This resurrection from the dead, Paul tells us, is Jesus' investiture. It's his coronation, his inauguration into a new phase of sovereign power as the God-man, anointed to reign on David's throne forever. Of course, it's not that Jesus wasn't the son before the resurrection and is the son after the resurrection. No, Paul is telling us that the incarnate son of God, first in a state of humiliation and then in a state of exaltation, is reigning and ruling over all things. It's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Christ, the one that you crucified. It's what Paul says in Philippians 2 that we've confessed this morning, God has given Jesus the name above every name because of what he suffered and did to save sinners. And so Jesus, by his resurrection, has ushered in the new creation, Paul is telling us. He has brought in this age of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out upon his people the same spirit that raised him from the dead, the same spirit by whom Jesus took back his own life from death. He has dispensed the power of salvation to all of God's elect. This is the gospel. 
It's a Christ-centered message. It's a message that focuses upon Jesus' person and his work. It's a gospel that brings us from death to life. It frees the guilty from condemnation. It frees those who are slaves of sin and transforms us into slaves of righteousness. And this is the message that Paul has been sent to proclaim. A divine message, a Christ-centered message. But Paul is not the first one to proclaim this message, is he? No, thirdly, Paul wants to tell us that this message is an ancient message. Go back to verse 2. He says, the gospel of God that was promised beforehand, that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. As one commentator puts it, the gospel is rooted in and grows out of the soil of the Scriptures that we call the Old Testament. Indeed, it's impossible to understand the gospel properly without the Old Testament because Christ's coming is so beautifully portrayed and promised and shadowed, foreshadowed. And the gospel is the fulfillment of all that we read in the Old Testament. We could go back to the beginning, couldn't we? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, The proto-evangelion, the first gospel, we call it, when God tells Satan that there's going to come a seed of a woman who will crush his head. Yes, he will be bruised and is healed by Satan, but he will crush the serpent's head and bring life out of death. Paul's going to tell us in the book of Romans, chapter 4, that the promise that righteousness will be credited through faith, we learn that from Genesis chapter 15. The promise that all the nations will be blessed in Abraham's seed, we learn in Genesis chapter 12. The promise of the Davidic covenant that the Christ, the Messiah, would be descended from David is fulfilled in Christ. So is it any surprise when Jesus says on the road to the Emmaus, he says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Jesus knew that his work was fulfillment of the scriptures Paul's going to show us throughout this letter that there is a powerful unity and continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the church before the coming of Jesus and the church after the coming of Jesus, between the salvation that God accomplished in the Old Covenant and the salvation that God accomplishes of New Covenant believers. Which brings us to the fourth thing Paul wants to tell us here In this salutation, the gospel is a divine message, a Christ-centered message, an ancient message, and a saving message. We get some hors d'oeuvres here in this salutation, some, some hints of what Paul is going to unpack more beautifully and fully later on in this chapter, in this verse, I mean in this book, about the salvation that God has accomplished in Christ. We've already mentioned, haven't we, the the emphasis upon Jesus' person and work, his incarnation and death and resurrection and enthronement. The gospel is indeed the proclamation of what Jesus has accomplished in his first coming. But the good news is not only about salvation accomplished, it's also about salvation applied. It's about what the Holy Spirit does, not just in world history, but in our personal history. When he applies what Jesus has done to sinners individually. In these opening words, Paul beautifully highlights some of that application of salvation. Notice first here the sovereignty of grace. 
Three times in this passage, Paul uses the the word called. He says in verse 1 that he has been called to be an apostle. He tells us in verse 6 that the Roman Christians were called to belong to Jesus Christ. They were called to be saints, verse 7. But this call of which Paul speaks is not the, the call that you might extend to your children to come in for dinner or that you might extend to your dog to come inside the fence. It's not an ineffectual call. It's not a call that you really hope will work, but you don't have much confidence that it will work. This is an effectual call. This is an efficacious call. This is a call that draws powerfully. It's a call of sovereign grace, a call that changes a sinner's heart, that moves us from a state of sin to a state of salvation, from being a child of wrath, at enmity with God, belonging to Satan, to being a child of God, reconciled to him, loved by him, as Paul says there in verse 7, belonging to Jesus, as he describes us in verse 6. Christians have peace with God because of grace, not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it. So we see beautifully the, the gospel is a saving message. It's a message that proclaims sovereign grace, electing love, effectual calling. But but notice as well this little phrase that Paul uses there in verse 5, the obedience of faith. Paul says that he has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name. Here is again where Fancy Nancy would want to say, ah, another genitive phrase. How are you going to understand it? Is Paul saying something the way that we might speak of the month of September or the city of Jackson, right? That is the city that is Jackson, the month that is September. Is he saying that his apostleship is to to bring about the obedience that consists in faith, obedience, namely faith? Or is he referring to the obedience that flows out of faith, that has its source in saving faith? Now, if I had to choose, I'd probably go with the latter. But again, perhaps Paul is being purposefully ambiguous. He puts it like this in Titus chapter 1. He is an apostle for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that is according to godliness. Paul wants faith and he wants obedience. And it's true when the good news of Jesus is proclaimed and explained... The demand that the gospel brings is to look to Jesus in faith. If you are not a Christian this morning, the call is for you to trust in Jesus Christ for the first time. If you've been a Christian for a long time, the call for you is to continue to trust in Jesus and not yourself. The gospel must be obeyed, as Paul's going to put it in chapter 10, verse 16. But faith, is both the initial act of obedience and an ongoing act of obedience, but it's not the only act of obedience. If Jesus is indeed the king on the throne of David, if he is the Lord, Christ the Lord, then we must not only believe in him, we must submit to him. We must bow the knee to his lordship. And as we'll see in this letter, salvation is not only having our sins forgiven and being counted righteous in God's sight, what the Bible calls justification. Salvation is also being cleansed from sin, free from the power of sin, 
so that we might walk in holiness by the power of the indwelling spirit of holiness, what the Bible calls sanctification. You see it there in verse 7. We have been called to be saints, which means that we have been set apart by God to walk in godliness and obedience. The gospel of grace changes us. Titus 2, the grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Paul is an apostle for the obedience of faith. True gospel obedience flows from a heart that is already trusting in Jesus' finished work for salvation. True obedience is not obedience that trusts in its obedience for salvation. True obedience is a response to gospel grace. A response to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Not a seeking for salvation of works. So the salvation of the gospel, the salvation that the gospel proclaims, the message of the gospel is a message of gracious and merciful goodness of God, saving us who were sinners so that we might walk in works that please him. The gospel is a divine message. It's a Christ-centered message. It's an ancient message. It's a, a saving message. But lastly, it's a universal message. We're going to see this throughout Paul's letter, he is wanting to remind us, and he does it even here in verse 5, that God is no respecter of persons. Whether you are seemingly religious like the Jews were, or whether you are irreligious like the Gentiles, you are a sinner and you are in need of the gospel of God. The gospel is for all the nations. He's an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith for Jesus' name's sake among all the nations. That's why Paul in this letter is going to to work to address the cultural tensions that existed in Rome because the gospel creates a new people, a, a church in which sinners from every ethnicity, every class, every culture come together and are unable to love one another across all the lines that might divide us. The gospel, as we see even here, and again, take into account the setting of this letter as a whole, the gospel is a missionary message to be brought to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Paul wants to go to Spain. He wants to preach the gospel where Christ has never been preached before. This is why he's been sent into the world as an apostle. It's why we have been sent. Not as apostles, of course. That's a once and for all office. That those who saw Jesus, those who have been called explicitly and expressly and directly by Jesus, but Jesus has sent us into the world as well as his servants to bring the nations into the fullness of joy that comes only from knowing Jesus Christ and bowing the knee to him in faith. So this is the gospel that we'll be speaking of in the weeks and months to come. It's a divine message, a Christ-centered message, an ancient message, a saving message. It's a universal message. The gospel is of God. It's about Jesus Christ. It's according to the scriptures. It's unto obedience and faith. It's for the nations. And because those things are true, brothers and sisters, friends who don't know Jesus, you must listen to this word. You must pay heed to what you hear. The gospel is divine. It has its origin and its source in God. Its content is about the one who created you, the one who sustains you moment by moment, the one who has acted to save sinners like you. Therefore, if you ignore it, if you resist it or reject it, you do so at your own peril. 
The gospel is about Jesus, the Son of God who reigns in power as the King of kings. Our call with Psalm 2 is to kiss the Son in reverence and allegiance, to take refuge in Him and in Him alone, lest He be angry and we perish in the way. This gospel has been foretold of old. It beautifully fulfills all the promises of God. It has proved itself to be a message of grace. Therefore, we have no excuse for disregarding it or treating it like any other ordinary human message. It's a saving message, a purifying message, a message that declares our only hope is in the death and the life of Jesus Christ that gives us forgiveness and adoption in God's family and transforms us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we must believe it and obey it. And this gospel is a universal message, which means it's for you. It's for you. Whether you think it is or not, whether you want it to be or not, no one is too bad and no one is too good. You are never, as one pastor put it so beautifully, you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And it is God's grace that has been extended to you in the gospel even this day. What will you do with it? Repent, believe the gospel Walk in the obedience that flows from faith because God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we come to you. We are excited to dig into this glorious book that will so beautifully and clearly portray for us your gospel, the gospel concerning your son. Oh Lord, we thank you that the saints of old have found their joy and their hope in this gospel. And we ask that we might do the same that you might convert the unconverted, that you might purify the, the dirty and the impure, or that's all of us. And so we pray that as we open up your word together, that you would transform us. We pray, oh God, that you would send us into the world, that we would go and bring this glorious gospel to the nations, that you would embolden us to proclaim your truth, to speak your truth, to encourage and to exhort and to rebuke and to correct. Lord, give us boldness that we might see unbelievers brought to Christ, that we might see your people strengthened in their faith. Lord, would you come and enable us to send our roots deep into this gospel of grace and to bear much fruit upward for your glory and for the good of those around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.